Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, Hans Christensen on nuclear launch authority in myth and reality. I remember asking the Soviet commander, could you have launched your nuclear weapons? Hmm. And he was like, oh no, I was not allowed to do that. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I know that. But could you technically have done it? And he said, yeah, there were no locks on the systems. We could have done that. The eyebrows on the American general just went up because he would say, dude, if you had made one move, we would have launched. And it's interesting that today now we have this debate of AI, artificial intelligence. How is that going to impact decision processes and military operations? And there's very much this focus on we will not take the human out of the loop. They still cling to that thing that there, after all, there will be this one sane person somewhere in the system who will make the right decision. Hans Christensen, welcome to Chatter. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining me. This is a timely conversation we're going to have about issues around nuclear launch authorization. And as just a bit of background for our listeners, in case you've been in a cave somewhere, the reason this is coming up now is because the Secretary of Defense has been in the hospital. And as usually happens, and as Hans, you are all too familiar with, whenever anything happens with senior leadership of the Defense Department or the President or basically anything having to do with the U.S. national security establishment, someone is out there saying, that this affects the chain of command for nuclear authorization. And you're the guy who's usually out there correcting them and telling them how it really is. So we're going to do that because of a couple of issues that have come up with public comments from senior officials that don't quite get it right. Um, But before we do that background, a little bit of your background, how did you come to focus on nuclear issues as your career? Yeah, it's ironic I have to talk about this because I have never been inside uh, government. I've never had access. I've never been in the nuclear command and control system. This is all, uh, you know, you know, skills learned from outside, of course, um, which is a unique uh, ability um, in a democratic society that it's possible to have a conversation about things that are really sensitive, um, even even though, you know, you're, you're not privy to the actual information. And my, my venue into this, uh, you know, I grew up in Europe. It was about the Cold War. I got involved in this uh, standoff, um, the debate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, got more and more interested in um, factual information. Like, how do we know what we say? Uh, where do we get this information from? Who has it? Uh, how, you know, which parts of it is accurate, uh, which is not? And uh, so, so that brought me to the United States. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, European countries are normally open countries. They like to portray themselves as, you know, open access, you know, flat infrastructure, if you will. Uh, but I found that when it came to nuclear issues, it was very hard to have that conversation over there. So that brought me to the United States, where there was much greater access to people who actually know something about this. <laughs> um, so through interacting with them and researching this issue, over here, I gradually became what they know as what they call in public an expert. Mm-hmm. But you know, there you go. I'm fascinated by your, your mention of growing up and uh, being aware of these nuclear issues. Um, we don't talk about age of our guests or our hosts here on Chatter. Yeah. 
But we do talk about life experiences and some people can uh, interpolate or extrapolate from those. So I'm guessing some of the events of the 1980s had a role uh, for both of us. And that could be everything from the the pop culture, like the the movie, at least in the United States on TV, the day after movies like War Games and other things that explored nuclear issues, but frankly, real life events, things like the 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 heating up of the Cold War in the early 80s and some of the stories that then later came out about some of the incidences having to do with the exercises that brought us closer to nuclear exchanges than we thought at the time. So which of those things resonated with you, either as a, a child or as a student in school that kind of brought that nuclear issue home to you? It was just sort of the raw experience, if you will, of the very intense debate in Europe about it. It was mm -hmm. in your face. And um, I remember some of the things that really made a big impression on me. Uh, <laughs> my parents had a house up in the northern part of Denmark. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I remember going out there and suddenly these massive aircraft just came flying down over our house and out over the local bay, turning around and swooping back. And, and I was like, whoa, you know, what's going on? We, we read it in the news. Much later, uh, I learned that these were some of the, uh, the big uh, northern wedding and uh, uh, teamwork exercises that NATO conducted up in the northern flank. Mm -hmm. And some of it had made it down over uh, our house. And likewise, in, in Copenhagen, as a kid, as a young man, when I moved over there, um, the debate over the cruise missile deployment in Europe was at its peak. And I can remember days where five minutes to noon, everybody would stop their car in the middle of the city and stand next to their car for five minutes in, in protest uh, mm -hmm. against this madness. And so it's, it's very interesting to have experienced how much ordinary people were involved in this and expressed their concern about it compared to now, where we now again see this sort of uptick of international antagonism and nuclear saber rattling and calls for more nuclear weapons and all this kind of stuff, that dynamic is now in full swing again. Right on. Well, I have to say there's so many issues surrounding this that that are fascinating. And I have a feeling we could have a conversation for about a day instead of just an hour or so. But I do want to focus in on the issue of how nuclear weapons are authorized for launch. So as I mentioned, the backstory is the Secretary of Defense who went in for a medical procedure around December 22nd or 23rd, I can't remember, um, but went back to the hospital after experiencing pain on January 1st. And the, the issue was that the Deputy Secretary was not informed of the details of his condition for days. The White House, the National Security Council, the president himself were unaware of it for, for several days. And what happened then is people came out and talked about this being troublesome. And there are many reasons this could be troublesome for a, a wide variety of issues. But one that a few representatives and senators started talking about was nuclear chain of command. And I'll read a couple of these quotes um, to set the stage, Don Bacon, a congressman from Nebraska on the Armed Services Committee, 
said that it was not right that the Department of Defense leadership failed to notify the White House. In his words, nuclear command and control is priority number one, and the SecDef is a key authority in this chain of command. Similarly, we had, I believe it was Tom Cotton, a senator from Arkansas, who said something very similar. Um, I'll put it to you bluntly. Is the Secretary of Defense in the chain of command for the authorization of nuclear strikes? As far as we can tell, no. (laughs) Okay. He should be, but he's not. Uh, Mm -hmm. In all other military matters, he is, uh, but not when it comes to nuclear. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is probably why people react the way they do or part of why they react the way they do, because, you know, common sense would suggest that, well, he should be involved. Um, But he isn't because the nuclear chain of command was set up um, uh, and optimized for speed uh, Mm -hmm. during the height of the Cold War. The the, the ultimate scenario was that a massive Soviet nuclear attack would rain down on the United States and and, and risk the ability to retaliate with nuclear weapons, wipe out the leadership. We mm-hmm. would have just minutes to react to this. There was no time to have a chat. There was no time to have a meeting. The president mm-hmm. had to say, launch. And, uh, and so it was set up for that. Mm-hmm. But in, in most scenarios involving nuclear weapons, presumably, that would not be the scenario. Mm-hmm. The scenario would be that there would be a time when it was building up tension, et cetera, um, and even if there were attacks against the United States, it's, it's probably unlikely that the first ones would start off as a massive, all-obliterating attack. We'd probably have a buildup. Um, right. So one can easily say, well, why on earth um, does the president need to have sole authority in the most mm-hmm. likely of those scenarios? Yeah. Uh, it is much better that he can talk to his, uh, his secretary uh, of defense the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, the commander of Stratcom, mm-hmm. you know, um, to get the best course of action and make sure you don't overreact. I want to split up those parts, Hans, because each one of those, I think, deserves a little bit of exploration. So to start, I mean, let's go to the absolute extremes of a system. If you're going to have nuclear weapons in the first place, so let's take that as an assumption that we do have them, because that's my understanding of the world right now. Right. Um, at the extreme, you could have a system by which nuclear weapons cannot be authorized for use without the kinds of things we're supposed to do for almost all other public decisions. That is, you have hearings in Congress, you have debate in public, you have a vote to authorize the use of force, um, in theory, a declaration of war, although we're not keen on doing that in uh, recent times, but in theory, and it is a full public uh, public buy-in discussion of it. That's one extreme. Yeah, You've laid out the reason why that did not make sense to leaders in the Cold War, and maybe even now at that extreme, simply uh, a matter of time if there is an urgent matter. But you can go to the other extreme. And the other extreme is because there's even a possibility of a quick rapid strike against us that could prompt retaliation, the President of the United States should have a literal button that directly launches the nuclear weapons. That is, there is no mediator. There is no person actually doing it, that there is an elaborate system set up where one person is allowed to do the launches within microseconds. Um, I would think both of us and most reasonable people would agree that those two extremes 
are both unrealistic and perhaps unwise based on the way international relations and human psychology actually work. <laughs> so we found this thing in the middle whereby the president has the authority, but it is not literally a button on his desk, despite right. what Donald Trump tweeted out at right. one point. And I will say, despite what at least a significant chunk of the American people believe, that there is a button that the president <laughs> can push to launch yeah. nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, putting those two extremes aside, you seem to be making the case that at least since the height of the Cold War, things are different. And perhaps even at the height of the Cold War, we didn't need a system where the president alone in the in the authority chain would not need to have formal consultation with somebody else as a matter of law. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the point is here again, like you, like you said, uh, because nuclear weapons are so extreme, you know, and they, you know, promise so much, um, we tend to end up in sort of worst case scenario decisions about them very quickly. And so in this case, it's like, well, of course, you know, if if a thousand or two thousand nuclear weapons are raining down over the United States, you know, why on earth would you argue against that? But that's not most of the scenarios where this would come to play. And so at the extreme, the real danger here, of course, um, the dangers are several. One, suppose we have a crazy president that um, gets into a brawl and, and, you know, or there's a situation that happens somewhere and this president reads it wrong and overreacts. Um, we've just had Trump in the White House and this issue really bubbled to the surface during that, um, that period mm -hmm. to such an extent that the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff tried to sort of interject himself into that, uh, into that decision-making process, which is a, an extraordinary um, mm -hmm. uh, event. Um, so I think, you know, under the most, on the, under normal circumstances, you would have a consultation, even though the president can put his little card into what is known as the nuclear football, uh, the electronic device that communicates his decision on what to do over to the Pentagon's command center. Okay. And in there, they authenticate that this command is actually coming from the president. Mm -hmm. And then they react by transmitting um, uh, the launch decision uh, out to the units and off they go. And that uh, authentication, Hans, let me clarify that that authentication, yeah. it is a, a coded process. That is Correct. the president has call and response codes and the, the biscuit, the card that yes. allow him to to confirm his identity. Correct. But there still is a human in the command center yeah, exactly. who has to receive that and say, yes, it's not an automatic process. Yes. It's not a computer he's sending this to. He's sending yeah. it to a person that has to interpret it. And that person is not the secretary. And that is not the secretary. No, that is a command center that is mm -hmm. manned by military officers who's trained in, who are trained in this, processing this um, extraordinarily important event <laughs> in the right way. Mm -hmm. And this was, it was that group of people that the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff under Trump was trying to appeal to, basically saying, if you get this order from him, talk to me. So what I'm thinking here is you still have issues of judgment. And my former professor at uh, Duke, Peter Fever, 
who has written about some of these issues of uh, command and control and civilian military issues, mm-hmm. has has argued publicly before that if it were a case of the so-called madman president, that an order comes in to launch nuclear weapons at, say, you know, Iceland, uh, just randomly, that a person receiving that verified code would realize that this was not a lawful order, that there was no reasonable basis for such a command and that that would prevent a nuclear launch. Um, What do you make of that argument that having a person there who technically is supposed to simply pass on the order once the president's identity is confirmed, but that person does have independent judgment? Yeah, You, you can hope that there is a brave person in the system who would act responsibly like that. Um, But you cannot rely on it. And this is the problem we have, I think, when it comes to the scenario of a mad president uh, or even an overreaction. Um, There it is needed to have a discussion between um, the top people in this uh, chain of command. Um, In any other way, we would do that. In any other military engagement, we would do that. Right. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the president pressing a button and suddenly cruise missiles fly out of a submarine somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. when it's conventional, you know, warfare. But, you know, you could sort of say that's nonetheless what we have on nuclear weapons. Um, but mm-hmm. like you say, there are people in the system, and you can hope they react and interject themselves, but you cannot count on it. Um, mm-hmm. And this is actually, when we discuss this issue, the counter argument for people saying, well, the president should not have the sole responsibility, the sole authority. There should be at least a couple of people involved in this. Um, most people say, yeah, but what if the Russians just attack? Right? And, and there we are back to that extreme scenario. Mm-hmm. But like I said, yeah, fine. But there are scenarios that involve U.S. first use of nuclear weapons the decision to initiate nuclear use. Mm. Remember, we have a strategy in the United States where we have rejected a no first use policy explicitly because we like to keep um, you know, a, a limited number of potential scenarios open uh, whereby the president could order the first use of nuclear weapons. And specifically in the context, for example, of very large conventional attacks against us or critical overseas interests like allies Mm -hmm. um, or biological, devastating biological attacks um, or or perhaps in the future, even very advanced cyber attacks that have devastating consequences, things like that. So for those reasons, they want to keep that option open. Um, And so you could say that would not involve this thousands of nuclear weapons attack against the United States scenario. So why on earth should the president not uh, consult the Secretary of Defense and perhaps others as well mm-hmm. in that? And let me remind you, he probably would or she, most right. likely in most scenarios, because there are uh, there are scenarios, there are uh, capabilities set up so that he can have a consultation with um, the military and civilian leadership elsewhere. So, so, so why not make that the rule? Um, for everybody's safety, <laughs> um, upfront. Mm-hmm. Now, let me think through what that would mean. So, if if we were to have a system under which, and let's just say it is the Secretary of Defense, but you could put in 
the anyone. speaker of the house. You could put yeah. in um, virtually anybody, but whatever you put into legislation that said this this must happen. Um, but let's say the Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. If that were the case, then the issue of is the Secretary of Defense incapacitated and has the Deputy Secretary assumed the duties of the Secretary, including this important consultative role, um, then this hospitalization would be an absolutely crucial issue. <laughs> it would if, if he were the only one he had to talk to. Right. He didn't know where he was. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. you, you can imagine a number of people that are involved. You can imagine uh, the Secretary of Defense. You can imagine the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. Um, you know, and at some level, also even the commander of your strategic command, of course. Um, and if there were a launch situation, of course, there would be an officer on this conference mm-hmm. call from Stratcom that would advise the president. You know, what are these options that are available to you, Mr. President? You know, under the circumstances, we recommend this one. <laughs> um, uh, but but so there is that it is built in with that process. So you could say, in a way, that it's interesting with this reaction to the, sec- the, the, to the Secretary of Defense uh, disappearing for a couple of days. It's very interesting, that reaction, because on the one hand, it misunderstands. It shows that these people in Congress, they misunderstand or are unaware um, of what the system is. On the other hand, it indicates that they're concerned that they would like to have the Secretary of Defense involved in that process, because presumably they think it's important. Um, And I agree with that. I think the Secretary of Defense should be involved in those first use and very limited number of Hmm. nuclear detonation scenarios. Not talking about the Big Bang, so to speak, um, but those initial um, low tier type of decisions. Presumably and reasonably, in any foreign policy crisis that would be escalating potentially to the idea of nuclear exchange, there would be extensive National Security Council meetings, uh, the president speaking with Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, National Security Advisor, others, probably endless meetings feeding into those meetings as well. Um, I think the concern that people have is skewed, if you will, by pop culture, by the idea that crises in movies and TV aren't, they aren't hours and days and weeks of meetings and meetings and meetings, right? And to make it more thrilling, I guess, for the audiences, it's almost always an immediate crisis, like a terrorist has nuclear weapons and is about to turn them on, or, you know, there is suddenly a wave of missiles coming and there needs to be an immediate decision because that heightens the drama. Because, because we don't have a lot of public cases that certainly have reached the mass public about these long deliberative meetings, the closest I think we probably have would be the view into the Cuban Missile Crisis and the mm-hmm. executive committee that Kennedy had where they debated a whole range of interesting options in response to the the Soviet missiles. But even there, it wasn't fundamentally about the choice whether to launch nuclear weapons or yeah. not. So right. there's a, there's almost this false sense that you know there the 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 one in a million probability which yeah. I I don't know if that's where exactly where you'd put it numerically but the one in a million probability yeah. that a nuclear scenario would involve an instant decision with no chance for these meetings and consultative processes um 
that one in a million chance in the public imagination seems more like a one in 10 chance or a one in two chance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that makes it hard to understand the topic well, because there is no reality to compare those, those fictional representations against. Yeah, this is one of the, like I mentioned, the unique features of, uh, of nuclear weapons. Um, they sort of immediately brings the extreme to the surface. It's like the you know, worst case scenarios. Um, and I, I, it's very interesting with these movies because, you know, there was a time uh, in the early movies where the scare scenarios were very much about some rogue commander going crazy somewhere and he just decided right. to use some of the nukes he had. And there's some really fa fascinating movies like, uh, like the Bedford incident and places, things like that, where they had the ability on the ship or submarine to press the button, even if mm -hmm. the president had said, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Um, but then, of course, the United States realized that this was a problem <laughs> and mm -hmm. building, um, you know, serious use control systems in its nuclear weapon systems um, so that there's no way that commanders can do that um, out there in the field unless that authenticated authorization comes from the president mm -hmm. and opens the box, so to speak. It's very interesting because I remember... I remember being part of a delegation that went to the former Eastern Europe um, to a, a former Soviet base in East Europe. And it was very unique because we had both the former Soviet commander of that unit that used to be there with these missiles, as well as the U.S. general who was in charge of the U.S. Pershing missiles in, in, with nuclear weapons in Europe. They were with us there in that opening between these garages where these missiles and the warheads had, had stood those many years ago. And I remember asking the Soviet commander, um, could you have launched your nuclear weapons? Hmm. And he was like, oh, no, I was not allowed to do that. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I know that. But could you technically have done it? And he said, yeah, there were no locks on the systems. We could have done that. And you could, the eyebrows on the American general just went up because he would say, dude, uh, if you had made one move, we would have launched. And it was like, it came down to sort of that extreme thing that, that you mentioned that we see intuitively in all movies. That's how close it was. The flying time of these systems was so, so short. Mm -hmm. You know, decision processes were very, very short. So that plays into it as well. But it was a fascinating experience. That is a real window into how these these fictional representations do reflect reality in some way. That some there way, is a yeah, exactly. possibility because I think, you know, Doctor Strangelove is the one people often point to um, as opening people's eyes in some way about the dangers of this. But you know, that was done as a you know satirical look, and it had some funny elements in it. But there is that fundamental issue of what yeah. about the rogue commander? What about somebody who finds a way yeah. to go ahead and do something? Now, it's different for the authorization of the use of nuclear weapons and then a choice after that has been given to pull back, mm -hmm. which I think is where some movies fail safe, I think, mm -hmm. went this way. Dr. Strangelove um, Same thing, basically yeah. does. And in those cases, th there is a real issue there is yeah. some of these systems once launched, there isn't an easy recall button Excellent. on all of them, certainly not back then. Yeah. That changes it because then, then you're not talking about the decision to to use these awful weapons, but the uh oh, we think we made a mistake. How yeah. do we fix it? Well, so that is a very good nuance because um, 
that's why when you actually get to talk to people involved in nuclear planning, um, what are the systems that are mostly intended for use in these early phases of, of, a, of a crisis where the limited nuclear use was authorized? Well, those are the bombers. The bombers go in, they can put limited, uh, you know, impact, so to speak, uh, right. and you can recall them. Um, and so it's only until later phases hmm. that sort of, you know, the ICBMs get to fly, et cetera, depending on the scenarios. Um, there are, of course, some places specific, specifically with the submarines where, you know, limited use is also involved, but not at the level where, where we're talking about, you know, many, many warheads being, uh, being launched. That's the focus on these bombers and their cruise missiles or gravity bombs, depending on what the scenario is. So there is that hope that when you turn up the heat and you start to, um, you know, signal to, to countries that now we're serious, that uh, that you begin with these lower tiers of um, of what you have at your disposal, and then you sort of gradually turn up the heat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, it occurred to me, mentioning Dr. Strangelove, that I was perhaps too conservative in mentioning what the extremes were for launch authorization, because the second extreme I posited was, you know, based on my memory as a child of the music video from Genesis, um, Land of Confusion, where Ronald Reagan wakes up from a dream, sweating, and reaches above his bed to press the button for nurse, but hits the button next to it that says <laughs> nuke, um, and everything blows up. But that's not the extreme. Yeah. Dr. Strangelove pointed to the real extreme, which is the so-called doomsday machine right? The, the automatic system whereby the detection of, of some kind of attack, it automatically creates a response and there is no human in yeah. the system. So I guess that extreme would be, would be different. The idea of an automated response to take humans out of the loop and make, in theory, deterrence more credible. Yeah. You know, uh, so in this country, we have very much you know, resisted that temptation to sort of take the human out of the loop. Um, that is, in fact, also out of you know the, the movie, the uh, the war game uh, from the nineteen eighties. War game, sure, is very much about yeah. that, you know, where a computer takes over. And it's interesting that today, now we have this debate of AI, artificial intelligence. How is that going to impact decision processes and military operations? That is very much also part of that conversation, and people are concerned that you could get to a point where a an AI system would make the decision. And a military commander would have to agree or not, uh, but being fed options based on analysis that this system is performing. Um, and so there's an intense debate with government officials right now. Um, I've been in, involved in some of these discussions, and there's very much this focus on, yes, well, we'll do all these things, but we will not take the human out of the loop. You know, So they, they right. still cling to that thing that they're, after all, there will be this one sane person uh, somewhere in the system who will make the right decision. That leads to some really interesting philosophical and psychological arguments about the sane person in the system. Because if you get to the point where you're considering the use of, especially a massive response of nuclear weapons, uh, sanity inherently comes up (laughs) in the conversation, regardless of the character of the person before the crisis that led to it. But you also face the issue with AI that, you know, AI, whatever algorithm you have building it is 
human informed. That is, you're, you're putting in the biases and assumptions of the people who are building the algorithm to develop it. So in a sense, there are humans in that loop. They're just humans who perhaps aren't as swayed by emotions or quick reactions. It's, mm-hmm. it's a more systematic process. But the ultimate AI, you also lose where that happens. Like the, It becomes the black box of you don't know how it gets from A to B to the ultimate yeah. decision. Yeah. So it raises a lot of interesting issues about um, free will and consciousness and decision-making yeah, Absolutely, that, that go beyond just making sure you have a, a good president and a good secretary of defense in, yeah. in the model you propose. Right, right. No, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, if you go to, you talk to people about these incidents that are known where, for example, someone put an exercise tape into the computer and the, the system thought it was a real attack mm-hmm. that took a person going to check uh, to figure, <laughs> figure that out. Um, we see the, we see it in the uh, Cuban missile crisis, both at the senior level, but also at the operational level, for example, in, in the U S decision to ignore one of the cables that came out of Moscow and focus on another one, <laughs> right. And yeah. decisions like that. And then of course, this epic, uh, situation with the three, commanding uh, officers on board uh, one of the Soviet attack submarines that were uh, operating off uh, Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, they had nuclear torpedoes on board. Mm-hmm. And where two of these three people decided that now that they were under uh, you know, depth charge attack from U.S. warships, they should launch these nuclear torpedoes against the American ships. One officer did not agree. So in that That's extreme close. scenarios, you could say we're here today because of that one person. And then we also have the stories that have come out over time of the misinterpretations or the, the failure of communications that have led to close calls. So I'm thinking here, and I and you'll know the details, but but I can't. So hopefully you can fill fill in the gaps and correct me when I'm wrong. But the the Russians perceived an incoming attack. And in fact, it was a rocket from Norway going north to, I think, examine the Aurora. And they had communicated to the Soviet Union at the time, maybe Russia, but I think it was in the Soviet Union era. They had communicated government to government. We are launching this missile. We're going to launch it in this window. This is what it's going to do. This is what it's going to look like. So you're aware and you don't misinterpret it. But somehow that hadn't gotten all the way through the command system and the decision was being made. Do we respond to this attack? (laughs) Uh, First of all, tell me where I got that scenario wrong. But then as a springboard to that conversation of a lot of our assumptions about nuclear launch wisdom and decision making and consultation almost assume that there is good, complete communication when experience shows us that is not always the case. Right, exactly. Yeah, the fog of war, so to speak, is always a factor, of course. And uh, you can plan from now until hell freezes over, but there will always be some nasty uh, surprise. Um, um, But that particular incident there uh, is is caught a lot of attention because um, it, it sort of carried with it all these things that could go wrong, right? That, that you hadn't foreseen, you know, a system that is optimized to respond to a surprise attack overreacts and does something. Um, 
And so for many years, there was there were reports that, you know, like you said, that had gone all the way up and they you know opened up the box and started to get ready. Um, but later, we've had a chance to talk to uh, Russian officials that were involved in that event, um, including the, the former head of uh, who, the, the, the staff officer, General Yezin, who happened to be on guard that day. Um, and he has later said that it, it didn't go that far, actually, that the system caught it. And uh, they, they decide that this was not uh, what, what we thought it was. But nonetheless, it was an, an enormously important discussion to have at the time because it really brought to the front this issue of, well, what do you do if this system is set up to expect the worst and, and makes a mistake? Um, there's another case, of course, back from 1983, I think it is, um, where, where NATO had a huge exercise in Europe um, that the Russians overinterpreted. They basically mm-hmm. thought this was a, a springboard for, for a surprise attack against the, the, the Soviet Union or was a pact. Um, and immediately, uh, you know, around this time of that exercise, um, the Russian uh, early warning system detected incoming missiles. Um, and there's this famous incident that has turned into a movie about, I think it's called The Man Who Saved the World. Right. There was an officer at the, this particular radar station that saw this stuff happening on the on the radar screens, but decided this was not real. It it didn't fit with the the political or practical situation that was going on at the time. So so he didn't he didn't uh, you know report it up into the system. Um, and so you know that became some very dramatic movies at the time. Uh, but again, here is a, a decision of some person like the guy on the submarine with the torpedo. This person, you know, or the, the guy checking the tape that was the exercise tape that was put into the computer by mistake. This mm-hmm. guy who says, I see something on the radar, but it's not real. You know, all these kind of cases. You know, it brings to mind this movie, you know, A Few Good Men. I mean, it, it, it sometimes, you know, maybe what it comes down to are just professional sound decisions by, by decent human beings that make the right call. And, mm-hmm. But you cannot count on that. And that is why it's important to sort of weed out as much as we can these avenues to this possibility of it happening that we don't want to happen. So this is why I think, you know, getting the secretary of defense in for certain into the the, the chain of command for these first use, limited use options makes sense. And would the idea then be that... Just as in many other scenarios, uh, if the Secretary of Defense is incapacitated or unavailable, even yeah. that whoever is the acting secretary would have that authority. For example, yes. Um, ideally, you could imagine, you could imagine the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff as well. But there are issues about how many people do you want to involve? Because every time yeah. you need more people, you make it potentially more, uh, mm-hmm. more, more vulnerable. And, and they're, one of the issues they, for example, are concerned about today um, or increasingly concerned about, this is not a new concern we had it during the Cold War too, but it's coming up again, hmm. is this um, scenario where um, the Russians are putting out hypersonic uh, cruise missiles um, on their submarines. Um, they don't have intercontinental range, so this is not about the big attack, so to speak, but it is about a scenario in which they could sort of take position off the U.S. East Coast and, and put these hypersonic missiles on target against command and control centers very quickly, including the president. Um, 
So this is becoming a new thing. And it's not, by the way, it's not necessarily just nuclear. They could be conventional as well. Sure. And, and so this raises a whole other host of issues. So, so I'm just saying that there are scenarios in which it's important to think this through. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's not just sort of a black and white, the big one or the little one. But, uh, but I still think it makes sense um, on balance to demand that the president has to check with the secretary of defense or whoever is next, um, you know, when it comes to these first use or limited use of nukes. We've talked a lot about the U.S. system, but you also mentioned the the Soviet system, yeah. and now inherited the the Russian system. What do we know about the launch authorization process for the Soviet Union? You alluded to some commanders having a little more <laughs> authority than perhaps ours did, um, but how that's evolved for for Russia. And then we'll uh, we'll move down the chain and hit some other countries, but Soviet Union and Russia first. Yeah, so it's it, you know with all, even with our own, there is a lot of uncertainty about exactly how this system works. So you can only imagine with other nuclear weapon states, there is even more uncertainty about what we know about it. Uh, but um, there has been some interesting work done on describing what the different countries use. Um, there's one by the, the Middlebury Institute. I think it's the report is called something like the finger on the button or something to some that extent. It's a very good rundown of what is known or thought about what the system is uh, around the world. And for Russia, of course, as for the United States, it's thought that the, that the ultimate decision lies with the president. Um, but there are other people in the systems that have to be involved. And, and in, in the Russian system, it is a little unclear how many have to agree. I mean, ideally, he will have to talk to um, the Secretary of Defense and the mm. Chief of the Armed Forces um, yeah. and to get them involved. But um, they also have a system that if the leadership has been knocked out, there is this perimeter system, so to speak, that that is designed um, to be able to execute the launches if the national leadership has been taken out. Mm. Uh, there's a very important book by David Hoffman. Uh, it's called The Dead Hand. Yes. Uh, which Great is, book. you know, required reading for everybody who is thinking about this issue. Um, so, so, you know, that's what we think about the, the Russian system, but there are so many uncertainties about it. Um, the same thing with the Brits and the French. It lies with the, you know, the prime minister and the president and the military commands, of course, have to carry it out. Uh, it's a little different when we come to the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese have sort of a central military commission. That's a group of people uh, that involves the military people as well as, uh, of course, the president. So in practical terms, it probably is the president. But, but you know, the way it's being described is that the decision comes from the central military commission. But mm -hmm. I would say it's from the president. Um, India, Pakistan, um, a little different. They have some sort of a, you know, kind of committees. <laughs> That uh, that are that are consist of military and and, and in some cases civilian uh, individuals that are consulting on this particular matter. Um, but at the end of the day, it's probably also that in India it's the prime minister that calls it, and it is in Pakistan probably the 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 head of the military that that calls it. North Korea, um, you know, everything is the dear leader, so that's probably where that comes from. Israel is sort of an interesting case because Israel does not officially have nuclear weapons, <laughs> mm -hmm. hasn't, hasn't admitted, admitted to do it, to have them. 
having them. But um, and also, it their readiness alert level is at a very very low level. Um, it is thought. Um, for example, it's thought that the nuclear component of the nuclear weapons are not installed in the warheads uh, under normal circumstances, but kept separate from the military uh, under civilian control. So there would be, have to be a process where they are brought in and installed and then deployed before you can even get to this. But even there, of course, the decision would be the, the, the decision of the prime minister. That is a great overview. Thank you. I, and I realize there's uh, many unknowns there, but that's a, a good sketch. One one thing that I've seen in just in open press coverage, uh, almost every time that there's a transition to a new prime minister in the United Kingdom, which is happening more and more lately, it seems. <laughs> but there, there's always the story that comes out that one of the first tasks of the prime minister is to get a briefing from the military chiefs in, in the United Kingdom about how the nuclear deterrent there operates, uh, and then write handwritten letters known as the letters of last resort that are sent from each prime minister to the commanders of each of Britain's nuclear submarines, instructing them in the case of an all-out attack that decapitates the, the UK government, presumably killing or incapacitating the prime minister and destroying the UK, um, what does the prime minister want them to do? Uh, have you heard of these? And yes. is this is this a, a myth like some of the other things that have been put out there in uh, British history to, in the sense, sensationalize some of their national security decisions? Or is, is this something that your understanding is that it, it would, in a sense, direct those commanders in the case of a catastrophe? Well, um, it's a little unclear because, yes, there there has been a lot of debate about it. Um, because it sounds bizarre. <laughs> um, what is it? What is it in the letter? I mean, I, presumably the commanders will still have to receive some kind of code before they can even launch it. So it's not like the code is in this letter that is in your safe. That can because then the command and control goes out the window. They could just open the box, you know, at any time. Um, so I think it's it's we'll have to learn more about that <laughs> before we can call what, what is real here, but I think it might have more to do with sort of the general idea here that submarines are intended to be the last resort, that if everything else goes wrong and the entire country is eliminated, there will always be that last resort on the submarines. And so they will have to be able to act in some shape or form. Um, when that code is sent to them um, depends on the country, the system, the situation. Um, in our system, for example, it wasn't until I think it was 1997 that the ability of the ballistic missile submarines to make a local decision, their mm. own decision to launch nuclear weapons was cut off. Mm. You had a system that is captured really effectively um, in, in this movie, uh, Crimson Tide, where oh, you yeah. have a battle between the two uh, leading officers on the submarine about, in that case, it, it is a garbled, um, you know, alert that has been received and should you check or should you not check or just go ahead and launch. But they had the ability to launch on the submarine. They had two keys, but they had to agree. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a very... Um, delicate situation that was finally closed off uh, in the U.S. system in 1997. Former Secretary of Defense um, ha has um, 
has has described this. Mm-hmm. That's just to say the submarines are a unique case, you know, because they are in this extreme backup situation. Um, mm-hmm. So we see the in the United States, we see every day if you open up, uh, I think it's called 24 radar, 24 hour radar or something. If you open that one up every single day, several times, you can see these Takamo aircraft, um, these uh, E-6 uh, uh, aircraft flying out over the Pacific, over the Atlantic, down over the Mexican Gulf. Um, Their role is to transmit launch codes to the ballistic missile submarines uh, if everything goes wrong. They're up there practicing that mission every single day. And the point of practicing it, obviously, is the training component to make sure if it's needed, it's done. But it's also the deterrent idea that adversaries knowing that there is a robust infrastructure for authorizing an attack and for transmitting the the commands and then for executing, um, in theory, under (laughs) deterrence theory, um, that builds the credibility of the deterrent and makes any use of such weapons less likely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is the old thing, you know, you, you can't deter unless you, the adversaries know that you have something to deter with and that it's credible. Um, right. On the yeah. other hand, one also has to be a little careful not to get too romantic about deterrence because deterrence mm-hmm. is a process in the brain of the adversary. And you don't always know how that adversary will react and, and, and put two and two together and, and rationalize. This is one of the big issues here about the Russian leadership in the context of Ukraine, of course, you know, are they sane still? <laughs> do they do they really think that um, they now have, do we see a lowering of the willingness to use nuclear weapons, so to speak, or not? Um, so so these are some of the you know big questions about deterrence. But, but yes, you have to practice that all the time um, if you want to be credible. Um, and we do that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's an extensive operation. But but it's also important that it's not just about how we sort of train. It's also how about the system is structured because mm-hmm. command and control, the command and control system, you know, is not one transmission into the Pentagon and then out to the launchers. There's a bunch of redundant systems that are intended to ensure that if some part of this, um, you know, communication system is knocked out, it will always be possible to get the launch order to the units. Um, so that's, that has, uh, I think, proliferated greatly over the last uh, you know, 20, 30 years because there is an understanding that you know, the whole, if, if that system doesn't work, the whole thing just falls apart. Um, so, so that's an important development that's happening now. And in fact, we're, it's so important that in our public conversation about the nuclear modernization program, they're now beginning to call the nuclear command and control system the fourth leg of the nuclear triad. <laughs> we have this triad of bombers, ballistic missile submarines, land-based ballistic missiles, right? We call it the triad. But now they're, they're, they're talking about this command and control system supporting all of that as literally the fourth leg. If it is so well-developed and so robust, as I think we, we all hope, that actually gives us some confidence that a procedure by which the Secretary of Defense must be consulted, uh, even if in in very uh, quick time, that that could be done because yeah. these systems that are, you know, redundant upon redundant to allow for the, everything you've just described, in theory, could also be applied to 
ensure under a hundred different crisis scenarios that there can be that communication, consultation, and verified approval by a second person other than the president, right? Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, it depends who you talk to, but I've I've certainly heard high-ranking generals who are directly involved in that process saying, we will get the message out. I mean, very confidently saying that. I mean, they would certainly not break down at the coffee table and say, oh, I'm so sorry, we will not be able to do it if that were the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they would keep that. But they, they talk about this as, as being very confident. But it's also interesting to see that I, I got under the Freedom of Information Act um, a document, an assessment made by the U.S. Um, intelligence community back in 10 years ago, back in 2012. Hmm. So not that long ago. Um, that looked at what if the Russians went crazy? Hmm. What if they decided, screw the New START treaty, let's just build up our forces and, you know, try to get the military advantage. And the striking uh, conclusion of that assessment was that there was nothing, and it's almost in so many words in the document, there is nothing the Russians can do, even breaking out of New START and vastly increasing its number of nuclear weapons, that would fundamentally undermine uh, strategic stability. The point being that strategic stability is no matter what they do, they cannot get to the submarines. And so they can pile as much as they want and they can attack this and that, but there's nothing they can do that would prevent them from getting that devastating retaliatory strike coming in again. So, mm-hmm. so this was just 10 years ago. Wow. And, and so we haven't seen a new one, but I doubt it has changed very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very relevant even for the situation we're in right now. Well, it is our tradition on Chatter to close our conversations with a random question from the Chatter box. <laughs> Hans, boy, this puts you on the spot in an entirely different way. Should the United States send a manned mission to Mars? What do you think about that? <laughs> My take on it is that that would be quite uh, an adventure. Um, <laughs> an adventure like an adventure you'd want to go on because it would be fun or an adventure as a euphemism for this would be a disaster? No, I would never want to leave this planet uh, for good. Um, I'm, I'm one of the few things that keeps me sane, I think, uh, is nature, um, you know, uh, the natural environment. Yeah. And I could not leave that. Um, yeah. So I'll leave that to other people. But whether we should spend all the resources to try to do it, that's the real question, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that worth it? Uh, what are we trying to get out of it? I'm tempted to say no. I think it's uh, interesting and fantastic, but I, w- <laughs> there's a lot of stuff we can do in, in closer to Earth with uh, operations around the moon. Why don't we start there? That sounds reasonable and practical. Um, Hans, thank you for joining me on short notice to talk about this timely issue. We appreciate your insight. Thanks very much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Thank you.